we'll go one, two, three, and then clap. Yes, the clapping. I've remembered that. Yeah. 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 Okay. One, two, three. But you have to clap as well. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You were like, yes, yes. It was just you clapping. Right, try again. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, welcome or welcome back to the Get Curious with me, Nadja Vitorovic. So today, firstly, Happy New Year. I haven't posted in a while. And I've been holding on to this episode for about three months with a guest that you just heard a little snippet of for the starting of our recording, which I just thought was really funny and thought that I should definitely add into the final (laughs) product. Um, Yeah, today it's about choice feminism. It's with a guest who I hold dear to my heart. It's my old history teacher from school. Um, She always stood out to me as a feminist figure and then when she went on maternity and paternity leave with her partner we'll also all get into this in the podcast but for all of these reasons I am so excited and I was so excited to invite her to my podcast I'm so excited to be able to release this podcast and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do so I might pop back in a couple more times to explain (laughs) like where I've chopped up pieces of this podcast but um for the most part, I hope you just sit back and enjoy and listen. My old history teacher, Emma Chaplin. Welcome, Emma. Hello. Nice <laughs> to be here. Yeah, it's so weird calling you Emma, actually. In the emails that I was sending you, I was like, oh, Emma, <laughs> rather than Miss Chaplin. I know, it is bizarre. I'm having to do quite a lot of that. I'm doing a new job at the moment in the sixth form, and I have to contact quite a lot of OS, and I always write Emma on the bottom of the email, and then I'm like, oh, this feels very weird. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so choice feminism. Well, the reason I invited you for the podcast um, was because uh, even through our studies and through history you just I don't even know if it was an active thing on your part and I want to ask you this later is if it was an active part or just something that just came through with the way that you acted and the way that you discussed because your history teachers where you're discussing history and like the um women's votes and even you were the head like a what are they called like a head of house for the girl's house and the code yeah, and the code to the building was a date for the women's right like to vote. Um, so that's why I was like, when I'm talking about choice feminism, which is a topic which is extremely like controversial yeah. on both sides, I thought, who better to ask? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think with me, it is it is part, partly a conscious decision to talk about it. Um, I think I have been influenced by some very strong women in my life. Um, two probably from my family and one was a teacher when I was at school and I don't think I realised until later what a radical figure she was um and I suppose and she was my history teacher (laughs) so there you go um and I think I just it made me realise that for some young women that if they don't have women talking about these things to them they're never going to hear it and that's that's in my mind is just wrong and it's not 
I didn't ever want to push my opinions on any of you, but it's about getting you to think. That's the fundamental thing. Like as a woman, um, you know, how do you perceive your identity, your rights, um, and getting people just to think about it. And I think very much being a housemistress, I was really aware of that. And I suppose I inherited the house from a very strong feminist, Mrs Mullinder, and obviously she had very much mm -hmm. instilled in the house. I mean, their maxim is there to be different, you know, and it was this idea that you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And I have to say, Mrs. Mullinder was another massive influence on my sort of uh, life and my views about women and feminism. So, yeah, I suppose it was definitely a conscious decision. I remember Miss Mullinder, but she I came in I kind of at the back end yes, of her time at the yeah. BSC, really. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, I, I really, that's really lovely that she actually impacted you as a colleague. Yes, she did. She really did. So I think, so the, the four strongest influences, she, I, I do, I do always think that I've had four very strong female influences on my life. She definitely would be one of them. Um, and then as I say, I, I went to school and at school, my history teacher, and it's really interesting because when you emailed me, I was thinking about this. I think of her as a very significant figure on my education but actually I think she only taught me for a year or two maybe at the most when I thought about it wow yeah I know it's bizarre but she was head of history Mrs Barnes and she was relatively young um and she was just she was a lovely lovely person but she was uh I was at school in the early 90s sort of late 80s early 90s and uh, she was introducing things like black history women's history and I just loved all of it I I, I just yeah, the fight for equality was just, I just found it so interesting. And she made history, she just brought it alive um, and was obviously very clearly in how she behaved a feminist. But she never actually overtly said that to us, but she just got us to think. And as I say, it was just kind hearted, but challenging in everything she did. And I look back now and I realise how radical the things that she was teaching were in the late 80s, early 90s, because like black history, women's history, medical history. I studied medical history at school and actually that, you know, none of those topics were on the on the normal spec um, at that point in time. Yeah. And then when I went to the came to the college and I have to say the college was obviously the second job I had. I'd worked in the state sector beforehand. And I think in the state sector, I'd always I hadn't seen many really strong female leaders, if I'm being honest. I'd had a head of department that was quite strong. She was brilliant. But I think the women at the top in senior management level were very, again, they used to like wear suits to be like men and whatnot. And I came to the college and I remember looking at Miss Mullinder thinking, oh my God, this is a woman that paints her nails, that, you know, dresses beautifully. And she had just this amazing impact on anybody around her you know she she could she can conduct meetings with such grace and control um she was the equal to every man in the room she really was and and yet she didn't feel that she had to look like a man and that that was really inspiring to me because i was like oh okay so i don't need to wear the shoulder pads and the kind of big manly jacket to stand in a classroom and have control and you know Mrs. Mullins used to say, no, of course not, Emma. If you want to have your nails done, go and get them done, you know. And she was just this glamorous <laughs> who was just, uh, to me, was awe-inspiring again, um, who she just always stood her ground very firmly, but she was, without shadow of a doubt, equal in terms of her influence to all her male colleagues. And anyone that you talk to now would still refer to her as 
you know, being a very, very inspiring woman to work with, um, who saw herself as nothing other than equal. Interestingly, I'm that's the view she presented. I don't know whether she actually felt that. I suspect not at points. She was very, you'll always remember she didn't sing to the second uh, second verse of the school song, which talked about boys crying. No, I didn't know that. She refused point blank. Point blank. She was like, I will not sing to that. Wow. You know, so, and again, yeah, I just thought, wow, you are a woman that's prepared to stand up for the cause. So, yeah, never sung. And I still... I still struggle now to sing it because I always think, no, actually, I'm pointing the principle. Well, that's interesting because I, it, you've touched on so many topics which I wanted to get into because, firstly, the your teacher, your history teacher, yes. the way that you describe her with being, you know, never explicitly saying feminism but talking about that fight feminism and everything and also talking about the black history and black women mm-hmm. and the fight, that is that was you for me like that is you for me which I'd like you to know because seriously um yeah so I love I love hearing that hello me again so I thought I'd add in um just here I moved some things around for continuity but before this, Emma was talking about um, the two other major feminist influences on her life, which were her mum and her grandma. And I couldn't fit these in, so it seemed seamless, but this is a part which I'm so happy that Emma shared with me. And I think it brings a lot of value to her perspective and the perspective of feminism through generations as well so I definitely wanted to add it in and, and hopefully this isn't too much of a of a cut in for you but I'll leave you I'll leave you I think my early influences and I think I spoke to you this about this when 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 I was teaching you is that I had in my personal life I had a grandma who was just fierce feminist who, and I think we might need to talk about that later when we get on to choice feminism and what we mean by that. But, you know, my grand came from, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say an impoverished background, but certainly a relatively poor one who, you know, couldn't go through school past primary school age, a hugely bright woman, you know, who grew up embittered and angry because the world had not been equal for her at all. And the decisions that she, the choices that she could make, make were restricted by her lack of education, formal education, I should say, really. So she basically, when I was growing up, I remember from about the age of five, you know, I was told, you will go to university, you will study, you will have, you know, if you want a career, you'll go out and get one. And she was this really, like, very, very forceful figure who I'm sure was saddened by the era in which she'd been born and the socioeconomic position she'd been born in. Um, and and I suppose rightly angry because all her brothers had, I think, got an education past primary school level. And I don't think they were anywhere near as bright as my gran. Um, so, you know, this woman that could do the telegraph crossword in like five minutes flat, which is what she could do. She was just phenomenally bright, just, I think, restricted. I don't come anywhere near to her standards. But then obviously my mum was very, very different. And my mum did make an active choice and actually probably had much more freedom in the choices she made to stay at home and be a mother that didn't work really until I went to 
all, all my my sisters and I went to primary school so she made an active choice to stay at home and she loved being a mother and she loved being at home and it's very interesting because the two of them didn't get on at all they fiercely clashed I think my grand saw her as far too soft far too conformist you know very domestic sphere but that was my mum and she loved being like that and I, I have to say I think as children we benefited from having that wonderful love and um, upbringing but as I say my mum made an active choice to stay at home she didn't, she didn't want the career she wanted to be at home for us so my personal life so I suppose I've, I've got those two very strong influences on me um, and maybe I was lucky to have those two influences because they're so polar opposite that actually it perhaps gave me uh, the ability to kind of um, see feminism maybe from different sides. And um... Hello again. This is the last time until I close off the episode. Um, yes, I will just throw you again into the conversation, but thought I would acknowledge that you are being thrown around the conversation. But this is the only time I just thought and hopefully you agree after listening to that part that it was it was very in insightful enlightening and um me personally I'm super grateful that that Emma was able to share that with me and with with all of you who are listening um with your grandma and your mum which I want to go into about Mm. um choice feminine but also the arguments around choice feminism which is like the side which says you know we almost have to be against the gender roles which is like your grandma like you mm. you you want to push women in, into stem you want to push da, 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 da. and then your mother being on the very side more on the the choice feminism mm. side of things being like you know she wants to be in the home and there's nothing wrong with that that's an equally valid choice mm. um and for me the argument comes the interesting point would be whether either choice whether you choose to go and stand because it it means something for the feminist movement for the collective choice mm-hmm. or whether staying at home you know how does that contribute to the collective decision and whether any decision really has to have a political backing behind it whether every choice that because choice feminism we never actually defined was is effectively this idea where women well women can choose anything yeah and thus be empowered by that choice because it's inherently feminist um so like the argument is like can i can i be a feminist and can i wear a feminist can i be a feminist and wear makeup can i be a feminist and be a stay-at-home mom um so things like that and that idea whether whether all choices have to contribute to the feminist movement as a whole um or they don't and whether certain ones are are valid in doing that you know Mm. and then the other one was how Miss Mullinder almost bridges that gap. So it's not saying that you have to conform to either one of those. It's like she's, you know, she's being equal to the man in the circumstances, but she's not wearing the things men wear. Absolutely. And it's that idea, you don't have to become a man to go into the the male space. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's what I found so inspiring about her. And I think in very much in that light, she's kind of <laughs> an early fourth wave feminist in many ways. Um, you talk about choice feminism it's interesting because I do wholeheartedly agree that all women should have the choice available to to them to do what they want and I I think that is pivotal and I think that's pivotal for 
all anybody that's sort of faced any sort of oppression it's, it's about empowering people to make choices my only concern is and there's a lot of there's a lot written about choice feminism is that those it, it's all fine and well to have choices if you're a woman of privilege and white and I'm very conscious you know I am a white person who lives in a comfortable home and I can make and I have a good education I can make decisions I think that was my grand's point she felt that she couldn't make the choices she wanted to make because of her restricted education because of the socio-economic con um, conditions that she grew up in um, so I, I do believe in choice feminism but I think I think in order to be truly inclusive we've got to understand that not all women have got the ability to make the choices they would like to make and they're forced into making limited choices, I think is the best way of expressing it. Um, you know, if, if you're somebody that has grown up um, in, a, in a culture where women's rights are not encouraged, then clearly the, the choices that you have available to you are going to be limited in terms of what you wear and how you... Do you know what I mean? Every single decision that you make will be affected by that. In the same way... Um, if you grow up um, in, a, in, in, in poverty, you, you can't afford to make the same decisions that say, you know, somebody that has got a partner that earns, earns a lot of money and can happily say, you know what, I, I will pack in work for a, for, a, for a couple of years. You know, those, those choices aren't there for you. So I do believe in choice feminism. And I do think it is about an individual making the decisions for them. And I'm not convinced that ever needs to be as much as I am someone that believes in community and ethos, actually, as a human being, should we not be able to make choices just for our own selves? And, you know, if that means that you're thinking about community, then wonderful. But that doesn't surely necessarily have to be that, you know, as human beings, we should be free to make decisions um, as an individual as well, I think, personally. Um, as I say, my issue is more that the fact that not all women can have uh, how do I put it? They can't all make choices in the same way that somebody that is privileged can um, and white. And I think, yeah, yeah I, th I think that's the I think that's the fundamental issue with feminism. Really, is that I am very much a fourth wave feminist. I, I I believe in inclusivity and everybody. And the reality is there isn't equality in the world, and race and culture and socioeconomic position all affect feminism they do massively and i think we're naive if we think otherwise really so i'm i'm very aware that actually the decisions i've made when i when i get really angry and sometimes a bit resentful i think hang on a minute though emma you know you have it much easier than a hell of a lot of other women who have had to make much more difficult decisions than i have yeah that i think is the huge choice of a uh, critique of choice feminism yeah is that it's not, it's kind of erasing that, it's, it's white feminism basically, it's completely erasing any sort of intersectionality and even the discussion around being a mother and the choices that you make as a mother or um, things like that, the choice to have children yeah. with different abortion yeah. rights and different access to contraception yeah. and all the way down to binary, binary, non-binary folks and trans women and things like that. It's not an equal choice that can happen around to different people. Um, and then the other point I have on that is that not only can you not have an equal choice, access yes. to an equal choice, but once you've made that choice, so for example, being a mother, there's many statistics that say, you know, the gender wage gap or the gender pay gap is really a result of motherhood yes. rather than of 
gender yeah. and so in that point our choices aren't don't even have equal consequences to yeah. them and in fact know? actually i was looking this up for you and it's really interesting and this says a lot because obviously the gender pay gap there's a 17.3 percent gender gap pay gap at the moment but it's really interesting that is for full-time women working but actually and i found this really really interesting a woman more women work part-time obviously because of motherhood and mm. making that decision but actually they're more likely to be paid better working part-time than they are full-time which i found really fascinating so I don't know that's that really interesting it is yeah anyway that was just me a random point yeah but it's also not really for me it's like there's motherhood but there's also the society's connotation to motherhood being the primary caretaker as well so it doesn't necessarily have to be motherhood in itself which is this the consequence it's that society has chosen motherhood to be the primary it's not the same as fatherhood no it isn't no you're absolutely right um so I did want to actually ask you on like on a like more personal note like whether because I remember you did something interesting with your maternity paternity leave at least for your first son Isaac um and how you did 50 50 situation So tell me more about that and why you chose that and everything. Again, I thought you were going to ask that question. Um, <laughs> so, and actually it's really interesting. So I did it both times. So um, my husband and I shared um, paternity leave. And it's really interesting because I often call him partner and I actually prefer calling him, I'm going to call him partner rather than husband. There we go. Um, uh, yeah, we shared it. Um, originally that was kind of, I was thinking about this quite carefully there were three reasons for doing it and actually the reason that probably came last in terms of my decision at the time became perhaps the most important out of all three which is really interesting so um primarily I didn't I didn't ever want to fully give up my career I didn't I love teaching I thoroughly enjoy it and I was well aware that teaching moves so very quickly um and I felt quite I felt strongly about the classes I taught I wanted to see them through I didn't want to suddenly you know stop teaching altogether and a lot of my friends took kind of a year off work and I didn't think for me that that was the right decision to make so it was partly because I love what I do um and (laughs) it's really bad because you I have found myself apologising for that, which just tells you what society makes you feel about these things. And mm. I know I know I shouldn't apologise because I do love what I do. And I, I you know, um, anyway, moving forward. Um, so that was one reason. Um, the second reason was economic. Um, so, and this is interesting as well, actually. So my husband works as a civil servant, so he works for the government. Um, so financially, we were better off actually having him doing some of the we could have longer basically by having him sharing the maternity paternity with me and I had done a lot of reading up and I really admire the system in northern Europe Norway Denmark Finland have just got it so spot on when it comes to these things there's so much evidence to suggest that actually kids it's really important in their first year that they have prime they have their primary carers there basically And so ideally, I wanted my children to have a year with us. And then the last reason, and I'm going to be really honest with you here. So the last reason was actually for my husband, my partner, um, more than anything else. I don't think he'd mind me saying this because he's gone about the country and spoken about it. But he, before we had the kids, he, you know, said, I'd really like to be involved. I I would like to do that. Um, And he has come from... 
a difficult background he's had a difficult home life growing up um so he sort of said you know I, I want to do this his father was absent for most of his childhood and he said I don't, I don't want that to be the same you know I want to be an equal part of this and actually we have always had a fairly equal relationship so my husband you know he's far better at cleaning the house than I am by a long way he would say he looks <laughs> better than me you know he does the washing better than me. so we've always we've always split things that's just how we operate um so in some ways it was completely natural but so yes that was probably when we first decided to do it before the boys were born the order that it kind of went in but actually when the boys were born well certainly when my first son was born my husband really suffered badly with his mental health postnatal depression he he was really hit badly by I'm, I'm sure a lot of it connected to his own childhood um and he really struggled to bond with our son in the first three months and I have to I have to say I was absolutely petrified to go back to work um because I was concerned how he was going to cope and actually he would say it was the making of his relationship with our son so it, it completely it revolutionised their bond. He said, I had to cope. And he said, and I suddenly started to understand what you had to do. So I think it gave a dynamic to our parenting that is is quite unique. And the scheme of work that he used, the shared maternity paternity leave, um, obviously I said he's a civil servant, but he now goes and talks to encourage other men to take up shared paternity leave because he says you know it, it it was so important for him and that's why he really mm. wanted to do it second time round as well so we did it we, we did it both times and I do think the boys are all the better for it for having their dad and I and as much as I found it hard and I wouldn't deny that as a mother I found it really difficult leaving the house when my son uh was what six six months old and saying there you go you're with your dad like, mm. I did find that difficult I'd be completely lying if I said otherwise but the benefit I saw for my husband and his relationship with boys was just brilliant that's so interesting because I've seen a lot about you know the difficulty that fathers mm. have early in uh when a child is born because you know as a the child is like wholly dependent on the mother yeah. for the food and for everything um so it can really be hard for them to like really bond in that way especially if you're having post um natal depression mm. and things like that that's really really harsh I wanted to take us back a little bit because you were talking about your personal being like a fifth way uh, fourth wave feminist yeah. and just to bring in the little bit of history element that you, <laughs> um about how we come to choice feminism yeah. and kind of how uh how it's gone, how choice itself has escalated through feminism, through the different waves and et cetera, and how we've come to choice feminism, which is, you know, the most liberal form yes. of choice potentially in the feminist movement. So um, I'm not super actually familiar with the different waves of feminism. What I've got down yeah. is that we go from basically no choice over our, this is especially only in the UK, um, just a little like disclaimer, I guess. <laughs> almost every aspect of life is somewhere restricted around the globe in not in multiple multiple countries uh, there's over 100 countries which don't actually have laws protecting equal work to, for equal pay mm -hmm. so all of this uh, we're talking in the context of, of the UK when I say that these waves or at least yeah I'll say in the UK because I can't speak for anything else but so yeah so starting from basically no choice um, in your career your money or anything like this and then moving to the 
again just correct me as soon as I go wrong but then the right to vote and the rights outside the home start to develop then you have the burning bras and you have pushing into professional spheres and then oh maybe that's no 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 no, it's not so so you're absolutely right so the first wave is always considered to kind of be suffrage that you know the, the challenging trying to get political representation I'd say second wave really is breaking out of the domestic sphere and third wave, I always perceive as the search for equality, really. Um, so women's liberation, ball burning, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing I would say, well, then I think there was this sort of basically being like, you're not a good feminist if this, and you're not a good feminist. And there was sort of like, then choice, in my mind, choice feminism kind of comes out of a retaliation yeah. of this, of being like, you know, actually, you know, feminism, everyone should be included in feminism. And now it now it's definitely not got its roots from it. But you see like intersectionality and, and the different rather than just like white feminism, at least in the mainstream feminism is now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that is the benefit of choice feminism. It's about trying to be inclusive. Um, and feminism has at points been very divisive, unfortunately. And um mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's where you're right. Choice feminism it encourages women to actually say, do you know what, just because I've made this choice doesn't necessarily mean that that other woman that's made a different choice is not a feminist in her view. Do you know what I mean? She, As long as she's made an active choice, then mm. surely that is feminism. That's what it's about, is being able to make a choice. Um, so, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I think choice mm. feminism in that respect is wonderful because it does liberate <laughs> the feminist movement and united which you're absolutely right it, it, it has been so mm. divided at points um and so sectional and I think that's the word you'll use it you know it, it, it and that's heartbreaking really mm. because that's not what you know that's not what feminism should be about at all um so I think choice feminism yeah the massive benefit of it is that it is inclusive and it's mm. a wonderful idea in a utopian world where everyone is equal yeah I would say that's the thing is that it came out of a place that's like okay we're no longer fighting for something that's sort of tangible yeah. like the right the right to vote is yeah. um and or equality which I mean you know second and third waves are, yeah. are talking about equality in a sense it's almost taking the assumption okay we've reached equal now we've got choice feminism taking the assumption that we're taking all women as, as having the equal stance right now mm. um and that's where it almost is fundamentally flawed yes because it goes too far in yes essence. yes it does yeah and that is the issue with it and I think I was actually I was watching a TED talk earlier today about race and um it was sort of talking about how you differentiate um how someone knows whether they're <laughs> they they say they're racist or not and how, how you understand you know what it is to be and basically what it was saying um was that you know you're not a racist if you acknowledge that there are things that you find difficult and that you don't always get right and I don't think feminism does always get everything right we don't and I think um mm. it's acknowledging that your position is different from someone else's and understanding that particularly in some communities, the choices that you have are so much more limited. And they are because there isn't Mm. the broad scale equality. There still isn't. Um, And until we do work on and address issues like racism, um, uh, you know, 
the choices that a black woman faces will be harder than the ones that I'm able to make. And that's not right. And as a white person, I, sh I should be saying that. And I should be saying, I do acknowledge that I've got easier choices in many ways to make than say, you know, uh, somebody of some, somebody that's black um, or even somebody that comes from a poorer section of the UK Um somebody that comes from a different culture you know I, I I think that's the thing about fourth wave feminism it's being aware of the different issues that face different women and understanding that we may all be women but actually that's a very broad category and um yeah understanding yeah. that different women are going to have different experiences and that's yeah that is the flaw yeah on a little bit of like a not a tangent but I think when we think about feminists, it's very hard um, for white feminists, at least, yeah, I'd say white feminists, to kind of let go of something that's no longer going to be supporting them anymore, right? And so I think the the why white feminism grappled on to choice feminism is because it's like, oh, yeah, we're all equal, let's move forward, da 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 yeah. da um, We're all empowered by these choices, when in fact, you know, gun violence yeah. is now a part of, of the feminist movement because you unless you're treating gun violence you're not you're not helping black women in in like certain areas of, of america you know what i mean and same thing is like climate the climate movement and we're talking about climate justice and climate reparations um that now has to be part of the feminist movement if we're going to if we're going to talk about feminism and supporting other women you're talking about culturally you you know your choice to have fast fashion or wear fast fashion is impacting you know women in the the workshops um the collapsing workshops in Bangladesh and such and I think that's something that's very very hard for for a lot of well not a lot of feminists for white feminists to grapple with and that's where choice feminism kind of coddles them a little bit in that sense yes yeah I totally agree I do I, I think you've hit the nail on the head and I love the examples you use because it's it's so nice and broad and that is that is the issue so yeah when it comes to your teaching yeah. I know that in school, at least, I had some interesting conversations where, and my sister, for example, would come back from come back from school, and she says, oh, "Someone said, someone said they're not feminist today," and I asked them why. A girl, a girl said, "They're not feminist." Ask them why. Is it because they want to be because they want to be a housewife? So they they they're not a feminist, and I was found that very interesting. Yeah. And I was wondering if you as a teacher have ever encountered conversations like that or overheard conversations like that and how you how you interact with that. I think it is really interesting. I think um, the way because obviously we, we, we look at women's rights, but specifically in America in, in the upper sixth. And so um, it gives us a lovely opportunity in the history classroom to really kind of challenge people on their own attitudes towards it. And obviously, um, I've tried lots of different approaches and I think the key way is to get people to think about their own experience actually that that's normally where I always start from um and I think when somebody says <laughs> you know I just want to be a housewife and I have heard that it's saying to them right okay why so it's asking them okay so what are the female influences on your life who you know what has your experience been um, and the way that I, I found really interesting is at the beginning of teaching the unit, I tend to get everyone to sort of say if they're happy to where they stand on issues. And I try not to 
take that to I don't take that as a as a concrete statement a lot of the time because I do know that the whole process of looking into women's rights is to kind of go through a journey um, and as I say I kind of use history as a tool to make them think about their own experiences because I, I just think that's the best way of describing it so I always ask one of the first lessons I just sort of say you know what is your own background and it's really interesting because some people say well I've never spoken to my mum about it and you're like what you know what, what decision did your mum make, you know, or, or your father make? Um, and I've had some really interesting discussions where kids have actually stopped and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go and talk to my parents tonight about this because I want to know, you know, did my mum give up work to have us? Uh, is it the fact that my dad, um, you know, was the major earner and that's why it worked that way round? So I just encourage people to go home and ask. And it's really interesting because the next lesson, their attitudes had already begin, begun to alter because it might be that they've got preconceived ideas about gender and um, roles within the home. And actually, when they ask their parents, that might be totally different. Others others sometimes have, and that, again, I find interesting. So clearly, you at home have quite a lot of discussions, because when I asked Lana about it, she was straight in there with, right, OK, well, mum was... And I was like, good, so... But that's quite, in my experience, that's quite rare. It's often an issue that just goes unspoken. And that, again, is the challenge. It's getting people to think. Um, so, yeah, asking them to talk about their own experience, listening to one another, because it's very, very rare that you have a whole class where it is the, you know, 2.4 children, mothers at home, fathers working. There's some wonderfully interesting stories of instances where dads have stayed at home where it's been shared yeah it's been fascinating over the years and equally some stories where women have given up their careers and they've actually said to their children I resented it you know and those kids need to hear it they need to know that actually that was a difficult decision for the woman and that you know it's not one she was happy with so it's, it's been really, really interesting. And it's only when they want to share it. If they don't want to share it, then I don't push because obviously it's got to be something that you're happy talking about. But it's really interesting. I find that to be the best way to challenge people's attitudes towards feminism and what it means to be a feminist and to understand the choices that face women in general. Um, yeah, so that's how I generally tend to do it. I get them to think about their own experiences. And I think and talking to women around them is the key. I suppose that's what made me think growing up because I knew I had these two influences on me that were so very different. Um, and I often start lessons when I'm when I'm talking about this, I, I start with my own experience because I think if I'm willing to share that, particularly since these people are up a sixth level most of the time, then it generally helps us mm. to say, okay, well, this is what I've this is what I've experienced. And it's just it's just getting them to think. I, I don't ever get offended mm. if somebody at the end of it turns around and says, you know, I still hold firm to the view I had at the beginning. Well, you know, fabulous. As long as you've thought, I, I, don't, I don't mind. But, but that's, again, yeah. the importance of feminism. It's getting people to think, men and women equally, about what it is that they perceive they want in their future. The, the issue is, it's nothing wrong with being a housewife if you've actively thought about it and made the decision... Like we were saying, that's that's the benefit with choice feminism. You know, if you actually thought about it and think, you know, I want to be a mother or I want to stay at home, you know, that's absolutely fine. But make the active choice. Use your brain, engage it and think, is this what I want? Do you think that you find a difference between um, the way that boys answer it and the way that girls answer it? Because you mentioned Mr Stewart and how that seems to be a bit more of an approachable way for the boys to have a male figure see that. And do you ever find it difficult 
as a female teacher or as as a um yeah female presenting teacher to no not, talk to boys about no feminism. not really no I haven't actually um yeah it's an interesting question I suppose bizarrely <laughs> maybe this is a bit ironic really considering we're talking about women's rights really but I don't perceive them by gender I, that that just doesn't even figure to me they're individuals mm-hmm. I would say that some individuals are more challenging to to talk to about certain issues when you know they're more ingrained but that can be female or male alike mm-hmm. and, and so yeah it's interesting you should raise that because it does actually make me think the way that I perceive my pupils is always as an individual it's never really been by it's never really by been by group and certainly not by gender so actually and sometimes like mr stewart found on that example it's much harder to uh, challenge a a woman to think about her position than sometimes it is a a boy if that makes any sense um so no Mm. i just don't i I, i've never i i wouldn't differentiate between boys finding it more difficult to talk about feminism or, or not really I've, I've, I've never I've never seen that as a as an issue I've actually found sometimes as yeah. well that boys ask some really interesting questions because I suppose they look at it with fresh eyes sometimes and that's again when I think I've done a good they can ask a question if they can say well hang on a minute how do you feel about this not to me but other girls in the class I think that's really encouraging because that's what you want isn't it communication between the genders that's how things have changed. Mm. It's by listening and understanding and, and talking like we are now. Yeah, it's the key. It's the key change. Yeah. So. so now I want to talk about kind of like the choice argument itself mm. and um, this idea of what I brought on way back at the beginning when we we're talking about individual versus collective decisions mm. and whether, whether our choices as women, just inherently because we're women, mm should have or like should be politically charged not in the sense that like um every decision is politically charged but that the certain decisions like choosing to be a mother or stuff like this you know whether whether they in order to be a feminist action should move the feminist movement forward or in it in themselves can be a feminist action i think it, oh, it's tricky isn't it you're, you're making me think it you really are <laughs> <laughs> Do I think so? Are you basically asking? Do I think that a woman should make all her decisions with female kind in mind? Yeah, whether 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 choice for a choice to be feminist, whether it has to have a collect like does it have to be a, a choice considerate of collective action? Yeah. No, see, I no, I don't think it does. Um, I, no, and I, I think we started off with this really is that I think. Um, the whole mm. point of feminism is that, and the whole point of being a free individual, as John Jacques Rousseau would say, is to be free as an individual to make whatever decisions you want. So I don't see why, as a woman, that you should make a decision thinking, "Well, I'm a feminist. I must make sure I'm, you know, representing the collective whole by doing this." I think you should be free to make the decisions that are right mm. for you. Um, so, because no man would have that put on his shoulders, would they? You know, would a man have to think what True. is right for mankind? And when I say mankind, I mean gender mankind, not just mankind in general. Um, yeah. You know. Um, so no, I, I don't. I don't think it should be about that. I think individuals should be free to make the decisions that they want to, and I don't think uh, they should consciously be having to think, "Well, I'm a feminist. I need to. I need to do this, or I need to do that." Um, 
true feminism and and is equality and liberty for all and that liberty does mean making decisions that are based for you as an individual so in my mind awesome I didn't actually have any more questions so (laughs) yeah I mean we had such like this has been genuinely such a good conversation I'm so glad that we managed to get around to doing this um like wholeheartedly and if I ever think of another topic to talk about feminism um then I'd love to have you back I'd if love you're happy. To. yeah I'd absolutely love to it's been such a delight to talk to you it's just been lovely it's reminded me of the old days <laughs> you're more grown up yeah thank you thank you that's very very kind of you um yeah so So yeah, that is the end of my conversation with Emma and I'm so grateful that we could have this conversation uh, removed, like now that I'm grown up, removed from that teacher-student relationship but hearing her experiences through her maternal figures, through her partner, through being a mother and a teacher um, and being able to view feminism not through her own, only her own experiences but also having been taught and teaching history medical history civil rights movements and everything like that I think it really brings uh, both the educated and the anecdotal side to this uh, conversation and I'm really appreciative that we could have this conversation and if you enjoyed this episode then please rate the podcast and if you didn't then don't (laughs) don't exclamation mark um I'm sorry this episode took so long to come out and I mean it literally has been a year but I hope that it started off this year with a blast um and yeah reach out on the Instagram at the get curious if you want to know more get in touch um I can pass on questions as well um but yeah have a lovely day bye (laughs)